So this week we are beginning a new series. It's a series that will stretch for the next three weeks. And together we will be discussing quite simply Jesus. But especially Jesus with regards to his roles and his actions in the work of redemption. And I say this before every series that we begin and I don't say it insincerely. I don't preach on things that I think are boring and suck. Uh, and so when I say I'm excited about this series, I mean it, and I mean it before every series. But I am especially excited about this one as we talk about Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. And part of the reason that I am so excited for that is because I think that in many ways this is going to speak to some cultural issues in the church, but also some cultural issues that we see in the world at large that will very much be pertinent to each and every one of us. And perhaps uh, you are like me in that it seems as though you often encounter people uh, who say that they love Jesus, many of whom would say that Jesus is their Lord. I can't count the number of times uh, that I would talk to somebody in one of my courses at USF when I was doing my undergrad and I would mention that I worked at a church or wanted to work in a church ministry capacity, and they would say, oh, yeah, man, you know, I love Jesus. He's my homeboy, or, or whatever else that they would say. And as the conversation would progress and the discussion would go further, and you would begin to talk about this Jesus, whom they claim is their homeboy, it, it would always become increasingly apparent to me that the Jesus which they are describing bears almost no resemblance at all to the Christ of the New Testament, uh, the Christ that is documented in the four biographical Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then you begin to wonder, well, what sort of homeboy is this that you don't seem to know him particularly well? Because often the Jesus which many of us love or the Jesus that many people claim to love is not a Christ of the Word made flesh, but a Christ of our own making. Now, he's a Christ who never condemns or passes judgment on sin, and therefore he is a Christ that renders the cross, which is the atoning action of God on the part of sinners, utterly useless. Uh, he is a Christ uh, who never in any way has any manner of confrontation, which is a Christ directly at odds with the confrontational Christ who examines the Pharisees, who calls them hypocrites, and who calls his people to repentance. And so we need to look at Jesus afresh, and we need to recognize him for who he is and not build for ourselves idols and Christs of our own making. And I hope that in our time together, we might be able to do that. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, the Apostle Paul makes this statement that he considers all things rubbish compared to the surpassing worth and glory of knowing Jesus Christ. He goes on to say that it's on account of this Christ which he knows that he has suffered the loss of all things. And if you know anything about Paul's life and in the coming weeks after we finish this series, you'll learn a good bit about it as we study 2 Corinthians. You know that when Paul says he has suffered the loss of all things, those are not empty words and that is not empty pain. He has been shipwrecked. He has been tortured. He has been imprisoned. Uh, ultimately, he will go to his death for this Christ that he knows and he loves. And he says in Philippians that whatever it is that he might have lost and whatever pain he might have endured and experienced, all of these things are worthless compared to knowing Christ. 
And I know that many of you in this room have heard the call of God on your life in such a way that that you may not be with us here in this country for long because you've heard the call to missions. Uh, Some of you have heard the call to ministry. Uh, Some of you have heard the call to faithfully serving the Lord in an occupation that is utterly hostile to him. And you too, like Paul, will suffer the loss. And the question is, do we know Christ well enough that whatever it is that we might lose, it is counted as gain because of what we gain and what we gain is Jesus. To endure this sort of suffering, to endure this sort of loss, to endure this sort of sacrifice and to endure it with joy, it is utterly imperative that we don't know a Jesus of our own making, but we know the Christ who is the word made flesh. We know Jesus for who he is. And several weeks ago, Shane, who is our high school pastor here at Baylife, uh, preached on the I am statement of Jesus in which he's encountering the Pharisees. Uh, And he says that before Abraham was, I am. And I love that he held out before you this question that, that Christ holds out in front of Peter. He says, who is it that you say that I am? And who is it that men say that I am? And Peter Uh, By the power of the Spirit makes his good confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus, for each and every one of us, holds out the same question. Who do you say that I am? And for you and I as Christians, it is impossible for us to answer this question of who Jesus is apart from what it is that he has done. Now, for as long as I've owned vehicles which has really been since I was 16 or 17. I've always had a cheap, falling apart sort of car. Uh, My first car, I believe, was in my junior year of high school, and it was $1,000. My second car happened my freshman or sophomore year of college, and it was $1,000. My third car was $1,000. My fourth car, I think, might have been $1,200, so I was moving up in the world. Uh, But because I've always owned cheap cars... I have spent probably more in car repairs than I have cars themselves. Uh, And really, when your car is constantly falling apart, it forces you to know a little bit more about the car than you would if you had a car that worked all the time. And so one of the things that I've noticed with regard to uh, vehicles, at least in the engines of every car I've ever owned, is that there is no one component of an engine that does only one thing. Uh, There is a brilliance to uh, engineering in that most pieces within an engine or within the engine of a vehicle have it what we would say is a plurality of function they do multiple things and so here's maybe an example of that right now the car that i'm driving that's red and utterly falling apart and smells awful and looks awful i call it the red baron right now it's squeaking the belts are squeaking every time i turn the car on and so what's probably wrong with this car is the serpentine belt And so as I've been kind of digging through the internet and looking at what's going to happen when my serpentine belt breaks, what becomes apparent is that the serpentine belt doesn't do just one thing. In fact, if somebody were to ask you, what is it that the serpentine belt does? And you were to answer, well, it uh, it controls or it powers the alternator. They would say, sure, but what else? Uh, And you might say, well, it's the alternator and it's the power steering. And and they would say, sure, yeah, um, that's half right. That's not all right. What else? And you could say alternator, power steering, and air conditioning, and they would say, sure, but what else? And and they could go on and on and on because this one unit does not do just 
one thing? The answer is not yes. It is yes and more. Now, the reality is this, that many of us have grown up in church. And so when somebody asks you, who is Jesus? You'll probably get the answer right in part. Who is Jesus? He is the Messiah. Yes. And? Well, he's not simply the Messiah, but he is the word made flesh. Yes. And? Well, he's not simply just the word made flesh, but he is the means by which the Father created all of the cosmos. All things are made through him. Yes. And he is the means by which uh, the universe continues to exist. All things hold together in Christ. Yes. And he is the perfect and spotless lamb, the atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. Yes. And he is the risen, reigning, and returning judge of the living and the dead. Yes. And more and more and more and always more. The reality is that the person and the work of Jesus is utterly inexhaustible. It is always yes and more when we talk about the person, the work, and the power of the Son of Man. And it's with this in mind that Christians begin to recognize what is called his threefold office. Uh, that Jesus doesn't just do one thing, and in reality, he does more than three things, but these three aspects of Jesus' work are especially clear and especially unambiguous throughout the text of Scripture. And so uh, when discussing Jesus, the early Christians would refer to him as our prophet and as our priest and as our king. Uh, this term, threefold office in Latin, is also called the munis triplex, if you're trying to impress your friends at Starbucks with some fancy theological Latin terminology. And in a lot of ways, it's born out of what is documented in the gospel according to Luke chapter 24. It is post-resurrection, and there are two disciples of Jesus walking along the road to Emmaus. One's name is Cleopas, the other's name is not given, but it is likely his wife. And the risen Christ along the road comes alongside Cleopas and his wife. Uh, and it is apparent from their appearance alone that the two are distressed. And so Jesus asks this question. He says, what is it that is distressing you? And they say, are you the only person in Jerusalem who has not heard these things that have happened? Uh, that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet mighty in word and deed, has been crucified. It's been three days since these things, and we thought he would be the one to redeem Israel. And Jesus responds, Oh, you foolish people, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Messiah must suffer these things before entering into his glory? And then Luke includes this sort of in parentheses comment on what happens next. And Luke says that from this point on, as they continued to walk towards Emmaus, Jesus explained and unfolded to them all that was written in Moses and the prophets concerning himself. So what we find here is perhaps the greatest Bible study in the history of Bible studies and the world of literature and especially publishing, it's not uncommon for authors to write a work and then do a book tour in which they maybe answer some questions and talk about what inspired uh, the book, maybe read an excerpt from the book. And what we have here is Jesus's official book tour in which he sits with these two disciples and he explains to them what was meant in the Old Testament, which he himself inspired. And it's with this in mind that Christians began to look at the Old Testament and say, 
how is it that there are these references to Christ here? And they began to recognize that in the Old Testament, there are shadows of things that find their form in Jesus. And there are threads that find their tapestry in Christ. And there are roads that find their ends in him. And in examining and searching the Old Testament scriptures, what was recognized is that the way in which God interacted with the people of Israel for so much of that nation's history was threefold. He interacted with them through the prophets. Uh, he, he made atonement for their sins through the priests, and he governed and he ruled them through the kings. Now, these offices were imperfect. The prophets very often would not speak the words that God told them, but they would speak what people wanted to hear because they were lovers of money. Uh, this is one of uh, the primary criticisms in the minor prophets is that many of the prophets of Israel are telling them what their ears want to hear and will not what the Lord has said. But the reality remains <coughs> that God would speak to his people, reveal himself to his people through his prophets. And the priests were often corrupt, but the reality is that God gave them the priesthood and the high priest as a way that they might make atonement for their sins. The reality is that the kings, even the good ones, fell short but that God ruled his people through the kings. And so as these offices were looked at, what people began to recognize is that all of these offices have their termination on Jesus. That, that, that they are not simply these empty, interesting facts about Israel's history, but that they are ultimately pointing forward uh, to a person, and that person is Jesus, and each of these offices and these roles is culminated and fulfilled and perfected in Christ. He is a prophet. He is a priest, and he is a king. And it's important to understand as we begin this series that, that this conversation that we're having around Jesus' threefold office, listen, I have no intention of spending the next three weeks in this just so that we can feel like we are the smart theological college ministry or so you can stand in superiority over your friends in other college ministries in the area and say, oh, you talk about that petty stuff while we jump into the Munis triplex and then try and impress them with your Latin. Because the reality is, and what Christians, I think good Christians throughout history have always recognized, is that theology is not simply an empty exercise of the mind. We are not simply dealing with fun philosophical concepts. We are dealing with God. We are dealing with who God is. We are dealing with what God is like. And in knowing who he is and what he is like, it is the single most important factor in determining how we will live in the world which he has made. This is not an empty theological exercise. And what's more, Jesus as prophet and priest and king, these aspects of his work, these offices which he holds are keenly and unalterably tied to the fact that he has the title Messiah, Messiah, Christ anointed one, savior of the world. Because the reality is that to each of these offices, there is a corresponding problem that God is trying to address. The threefold office is often called the triple cure. It's called that because there are recognized in scripture to be these three problems at the heart of humanity. We need a triple cure because we are sick three times over, according to the scriptures. Francis Turretin, a famous theologian, actually describes it in this way. The threefold misery of men is sin, ignorance, 
tyranny and bondage. And it requires the introduction of a threefold office. There is this reality, and each week we will explore the problem that each of these offices speaks to. But there is a reality at, at the heart of humanity that we are ignorant of who God is and what he is like. We are corrupted by sin, which means that we cannot stand before God with any measure of confidence and only the fearful expectation of judgment. And we are not simply guilty of sin, but we are corrupted and we are polluted and we are enslaved to sin. And anybody who will be called the Messiah or a savior or a deliverer, as we call Jesus, has to do something about these three gaping wounds at the heart of the human condition. It is not enough to plug one bullet hole if you're still bleeding out of two more. And so when we call Jesus Messiah, he must answer these problems to rightfully be a Messiah. The first problem mentioned by Francis Turden is ignorance. And the reality is that, that we are indeed ignorant. We simply do not know what God is like. And, and this is not something that I'm just pointing out as something that maybe you can observe in the world. Yeah, my friend Steve doesn't seem to know a lot about God. I guess I could see how we're ignorant. No, this is actually the sweeping uh, and overall description of the human condition in Scripture. The Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1, 21, he says, you were formerly alienated and hostile in your minds, engaged in evil deeds. He talks in Romans 1 about how their minds are darkened by their sins. He so clearly says in Galatians 6, 8, Formerly, you did not know God. You were slaves to those who, by very nature, are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and those miserable Forces. Now, this is not to say that we don't know some maybe some basic things about God. Actually, that's the testimony of Scripture as well, is that there is a sense in which we can know some foundational things, namely that God exists. Uh, the reality is that atheism in the history of humanity is less than half of a percent of all people who have ever lived. For every single society that has ever lived throughout almost all of human history, it has been abundantly clear that God or some sort of divine person exists. So uh, Romans 1 talks about general revelation, that we can know some things about God. He exists. Or we can know that he is powerful by looking at the nature of the cosmos, which he has created, the vastness of it, the complexity of it. And we can recognize that if the cosmos are indeed as complex as they seem to be and seem to um, seem to function as and the complexity of the laws of gravity and things of that nature, well, well, then God must be wise. He must be vast. He must be wise. He must be powerful to create and sustain such a vast creation. So we can come to those things, but that is a far cry from truly knowing God in the sense that you would know a person. And so the problem remains. We may know there is a God. We may know that he's powerful, but we don't really know him. And Paul says it clearly in Galatians, formerly you did not know God. To answer this issue of our ignorance in the Old Testament, God would give the office of the prophet. No, the purpose of a prophet in ancient Israel was to represent God to man, to show the people of Israel what God was like. Now, this is perhaps 
counterproductive to the way that many of us think about prophecy. For many of us, uh, prophecy is about telling us what would happen in the future. And so when we talk about someone as a prophet, uh, we are referring to them as having the ability to predict the things to come. Now, this is certainly an element of prophecy, uh, but the reality is less than 5% of what is called the works of the prophets in the Old Testament is actually predictive of the future. Nearly all of the the prophetic works of the Old Testament are concerned with God's concerns for the people of Israel now. They step into the marketplace. They step into the palaces of kings. They step into the temple and they say, hear the word of the Lord. So much of the prophetic ministries of any of the giants in Israel's history of Elijah, of Elisha, of Isaiah, of Habakkuk, of Nahum, of of all these people that are referenced throughout scripture, their prophetic ministry is primarily telling people, hear the word of the Lord and repent. And so the purpose of the prophet is to represent God to man. Because on our own, we will never know what God is like unless he speaks. A number of years ago, I had dinner with a friend who was in a band that was touring from the other side of the country. And I didn't know him particularly well. And I guess it doesn't make me a great friend that I don't quite remember his name right now. But we were sitting at the taco bus enjoying a wonderful vegan steak strip burrito and having a discussion about what we did outside of playing in bands and things like that. And so he asked what I did for work. And I hate when people ask me this because when I tell them that I work at a church, they always get super awkward. And so at the time I was the worship leader for student ministry and the janitor. And so I told him that that's what I did. And he said, Oh, I love, I love to have conversations about religion and spirituality (laughs) And I said, I bet you do. And, and so what, what proceeded was a conversation around these things. And, and there was a point during this conversation that to me was kind of definitive of, of the direction that things took. And he said, you know, I think there might be something out there, some sort of force or power or divinity. Uh, but the thing that I just don't get about Christians, the, the thing that is such a sticking point for me is that Christians talk about God as though they know him. Christians talk about God as though they know what God is actually like. And I just don't know how you can, you can think that. I don't know how you can presume to know what God is like because he's obviously very unlike us and how could we in our finite human thinking ever hope to comprehend something so vast and powerful as God himself? The reality is that I don't think my friend realized quite how good of a question that was. Because it is a good question. In fact, it's a biblical question. How can we who are so marred, who are so corrupted by sin, how can we who are so small in the grand scheme of things, whose lives are but a vapor, how can we ever hope to know what God is like? And it's with all of these questions in mind, it's with this sickness of ignorance that the Bible has diagnosed in us that we do not know God and that we are hostile in mind towards him. It's with all this at the forefront of our thinking that the author of Hebrews begins the first chapter of his famous written sermon and says many times, long, I'm sorry, he says long ago that many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, 
is spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. To answer our need and to answer our ignorance of what God is like, he gives us a true and better and final prophet in Jesus. And Jesus is so much the answer to our question of what God is like that when the apostles ask him in the Gospel of John, uh, Lord, would you show us the Father? Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know what God the Father is like, all you need to do is look to me because as the truer and the better prophet than Elijah or Moses or, uh, or Isaiah, as the truer and the better prophet, I am the perfect representation of God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He'll, he'll go on and, and explain why that's so, because I and the Father are one. In many times and in many ways, God spoke to us through the prophets, but in these days, he speaks through his Son, who is the very Word of God made flesh. And we have seen his glory, says John. So to answer my friend's question, why do Christians presume to know what God is like? Why do we act like we know what the character of God is? The answer to this is very simply because we have a truer and a better and a perfect prophet who has answered that problem for, it, for us, and that prophet is Jesus. Christians know what God is like because God is like Jesus because Jesus is God. And he reveals to us perfectly the nature of God because in him the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. In this way, he is a perfect and a better and a truer prophet than any of the prophets of old because what they revealed in part, Jesus reveals in fullness. Perhaps the greatest uh, depiction of the way that Jesus shows us God as a prophet is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, in this account called the Transfiguration. Now, there was a time in Christian history where Christians who followed the church calendar once a year would teach on the Transfiguration. It was called Transfiguration Sunday. Go figure. And I actually think that's a good thing because the more that I study this aspect of Jesus's life, the richer it becomes to me. And so I was actually thinking about doing Transfiguration Sunday this year, but but it turns out that this Sunday is Transfiguration Sunday. So we are in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. And uh, to, to set the scene, Jesus is taking his inner circle, his three disciples, up a mountain with him. It's quite possibly Mount Horeb. We don't know. The name is not given. But Matthew in 17, 1 through 5 tells us this. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, uh, led them up a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. When Luke recounts this story, I love that he includes this little kind of parenthetical statement uh, and says Peter said all this because he didn't know what was happening uh, so it's Luke's little yeah I, this is what Peter said but he's an idiot uh, and, and so Peter makes a statement that it's good we're here let's make these tents for us and for you and for Moses and Elijah uh, and then he and then uh, Matthew goes on 
Uh, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. A voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is a strange account in Jesus' life. It might be the reason that it's not preached very often anymore, because we read this and we say, huh, that's cool. Um, let's get to like feeding the 5,000 or something that, that we can maybe comprehend a little bit better. But I just want you to know that we miss this text. We overlook it to our own peril because in it, what we are seeing is Jesus in many ways fulfilling his prophetic role of showing men who God is and what he is like. And it helps here uh, to, to understand the significance of the people standing on either side of Jesus. We're told that one is Moses and one is Elijah. Now, many recognize that to his side, Moses is representing the law of God. And the law of God is testifying that Jesus is the Messiah. And then to his other side, Elijah is representing the prophets. And the prophets are testifying uh, in the presence of Peter, James, and John that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, both of these things are true and they're good. But there's more here than just that. And it helps to understand the Old Testament. Because Moses and Elijah have something in common. Uh, in Exodus 33, Moses has gone up to Mount Sinai and he makes this request of God. Lord, show me your glory. He asks that he would see the very face of God. And, and Yahweh's response is, I can't do that. It will kill you. What I can do is hide you in the cleft of, your rock, of, of the rock. You can cover your face. I will cover your face and I will pass by you and you can see my backside. And so Moses is given a taste of God's glory, but he said that he can't look on God fully. He can't see God's face because it's a death sentence for sinful, wicked people. And something interesting happens in, in a similar way to Elijah. Elijah is on the run. He is being persecuted and hunted down. Uh, and on the run, he ascends a mountain much like Moses did. And he's waiting to meet with God. And, and we're told that the presence of the Lord comes upon the mountain. And there's this whirlwind and there's these, these just incredibly violent things happening as the very creator steps down to creation. And there comes a point where Elijah recognizes that the presence of the Lord is there and ready to meet with him. And Elijah covers his face so that he won't be killed by standing in the presence of God. And he goes out to meet with the Lord. And that's in 1 Kings 19. So what we see here are two men who are considered to be prophets, Deuteronomy tells us that Moses is a prophet. Uh, it's obvious that Elijah is a prophet. Uh, and it is their job to tell people what God is like. It is their job to tell them the character and the will of God. But they are only able to see God in part. They are never able to look upon his face because it will kill them. And there's this interesting thing uh, that that God has seen fit to build into us as people. To where when we can't actually see somebody, when we can't see their face, when we can't see their body language... Uh, to a certain extent, we don't really fully know them or know their intentions. Uh, no doubt all of us have had the experience of receiving a text message from somebody and taking it the complete wrong way uh, because we couldn't see their face to know that they were joking or, or we couldn't see their body language to know that they didn't mean what they said in a threatening way. Now, what I'm not implying is that Moses or Elijah misunderstood God. Uh, what I'm not implying is that they didn't get it, that that 
somehow they reported to us wrongly who God is. But what I'm saying is that it was incomplete. They never fully knew God. They never fully uh, understood his character. Uh, They understood part of it. They understood the part that they were able to see without dying. Uh, But they are partial prophets. So how does this have any bearing on the transfiguration? What, What does this mean? What's the significance here? Well, ultimately, the request of Moses is, Lord, would you show me your glory? And God says it will kill you. But what we find in the transfiguration is a thousand years later, God giving Moses and Elijah what they asked for, that they would be able to look upon the face of God. And the Lord says, you can now see me fully in the face of my son. And what they saw in part in their day, they see in whole, in the person, and in the work, and in the face of Jesus. Moses and Elijah see God. And they know God, and they know what he is like, because the perfect prophet, Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, reveals it to them. The problem is our ignorance. We don't know what God is like. We know some things about him. The answer is the office of a prophet. And we have in these days a perfect and a true and better prophet in Jesus who reveals to us the image of the invisible God in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily. So it may be best for you and I to end in this way. There is a there is a desire among churches to be prophetic. There's a desire to see prophecy have a role in the church and very often what is meant by a prophetic church in the common tongue is churches that are uh, uttering prophecies or prophesying over their congregation or making statements about God's will for the future of the church. And I'm, I'm not trying to criticize or, or to support that perspective, but the reality is that most prophecy in scripture is not predictive. It is descriptive. It is God bringing his character to bear on a present situation and saying, you are doing this. This is what I am like. Elijah, go tell them to stop. Most prophecy is about revealing to men God, not predicting to men the future. And so if churches, if ministries, and if you and I here at College Career, if we desire for this ministry to be prophetic in the biblical sense, which is to show people God, the best thing that we can do is preach Christ. Because if we have seen him, We have seen the Father. To answer our ignorance, God gives us himself as a true and better prophet.